I think it's interesting. I sometimes am a little self-critical of my profession. I, I used to joke when I was at American Express or when I was working on the consulting side of the business doing market research for people, I was kind of like, I'm the guy that people hire when their business gets so big and the people they hire to do their marketing are too afraid or unwilling to talk to their actual customers. So they hire me to talk to their customers for them to bring the voice of the consumer to the market. This is Evolve CPG, a community of purpose-driven brand leaders who not only believe in better, but actively pursue it. That's better products, better brands, and better leadership for a better world. I'm your host, Gage Mitchell, founder and creative director of Modern Species, a sustainable brand design agency helping better brands grow and scale their impact. On today's episode, we're speaking with Eric Pierce, VP of Business Insights at New Hope Network about the importance of knowing your customer and growing your business responsibly. Great. Thanks, Gage. So good to be with you today. Yeah, my name is Eric Pierce. I'm Vice President of Business Insights here at New Hope Network and Informa Markets. In my role, uh, I get to have a lot of fun. I love, I love what I do. I think that uh, me and my team see it as our job to help grow this industry responsibly, natural, organic products. And, you know, we sit in this really unique position to have a lot of data and insights and knowledge about uh, the trends and the market conditions that drive growth in the industry. And and our goal is to, to help bring more health to more people through the New Hope platform by helping companies make better decisions about how they grow and scale their businesses. And hopefully, because I'm a data geek, using data and marketplace insights to help do that. So, uh, yeah, our mission is more health for more people. And I always interpret health as health for people, planet, animals, our ecosystems, really health all over the place, uh, as much health as we can bring. And again, really important that we grow this industry responsibly. That's in our in our core, it's in our history, it's in our hearts, and uh, and we really advocate for that as, as we do the work we do. I love that. I don't think I'd heard you say the grow responsibly before, but that's nice and catchy. And I, I totally get what you mean, because there's growth at any cost, and then there's responsible growth. And I think part of what this more mission-driven or healthy, sustainable lifestyles or whatever kind of business industry that we're in, I think part of what we're focusing on is doing things in a more responsible, more regenerative whatever way, rather than just grow fast and be extract whatever you can, and we'll figure it out later. For sure. When we set the goal as just growth, it's it's no holds barred, right? When we set the goal as responsible growth, when we set the goal first as to improve something or to solve a problem in the world, and we do so through responsible growth, then we can have a conversation about innovation that isn't just innovation for growth's sake or growth for innovation's sake. You know, it, it can be about solving problems and growing while doing it. It can be about replacing the status quo with a better way of doing business, right? That's the kind of growth that we want. That's the kind of innovation that we want. That's the growth we can feel good about. On its own, I hate to say it, Sometimes growth can be a dirty word, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> All on its own, unfettered growth. That's not what we want more of in the world. We want progress, right? Progress towards a very intentional goal. Yeah. And I love that because uh, I feel assaulted sometimes by the business community, like magazines and blogs and other things like that that you see. And all they talk about is fastest growing this or you know, this person who is IPOing at this value or whatever, even though that company has never made a dollar of profit in their life. And we need to be talking more about like what impact those businesses have had or how sustainable their models are or whatever else, instead of just always focusing on they grew faster, they're the biggest or the they're the first or they're the whatever. Like that stuff doesn't really matter in the long run. 
Love it. So um, one thing I noticed when I was doing a little bit more research on you before this episode is that we share a little bit of Wisconsin history. So my business, Modern Species, was founded in Wisconsin. I, I didn't grow up there or anything, but moved there after uh, some travels as a good place to kind of reboot. But you went to the Wisconsin School of Business there, and I kind of took just some brief classes at the School of Business there as like in part of the, like the small business startup <laughs> little program that they have to help companies. So a little bit of overlap there, but you got more thorough education. But I was curious to hear a little bit more about how how you ended up at the Wisconsin School of Business and kind of what your goals were with that degree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I've got I've got a little bit of Wisconsin in my blood, so a lot of my family um, is from Wisconsin, has been historically from uh, from the area. My grandpa went to school in Madison. My mom and dad met and fell in love there, and uh, I was born in Madison. I actually grew up in Duluth, Minnesota. Don't tell anyone, though. I grew up a Packers fan, not a Vikings fan, because of the Wisconsin heritage. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I, I actually went to my to University of Minnesota Duluth my first year in college and um, just was finding that that somehow wasn't really fitting what I needed from a college experience. And Wisconsin and Minnesota have this amazing reciprocity agreement. So I was able to cross the border and go to school in Wisconsin for Minnesota prices. And it just felt like the right thing to do. I had heard, you know, and I, I didn't even choose it necessarily for the programs or anything else. I chose it for the experience. And uh it was one of the better decisions I made unintentionally. It was the right place to be for my interests. I just didn't know it at the time. <laughs> and it was an amazing experience. I, I love yeah, love that school, love the time that I had there. And uh, yeah, that's kind of high ended up there. Great. Yeah, I've I always found that school to be a great supporter of the community. And they do so many amazing research programs or just like community benefit things. And it's just an uh, awesome school with lots of good people there. And, and Madison is also a pretty cool city, which I love. But I'm curious, did you go into this, the program knowing you wanted to study business or was it kind of like what happens to a lot of people? They start college and then figure out their major later. Yeah, I was fortunate, I think, to at least I was on a path that I thought I knew what I wanted to do. Sometimes I'll I'll talk about people ask how I got started doing what I what I do. And, and I uh, my whole career started because of bananas, <laughs> 19 cent a pound bananas. When I was in in uh, high school, I took my first job at a they called themselves a locals farmers market, but uh, it was sort of an everything store, sort of like an Ace Hardware mashed up with a local small grocery store and a gift shop all at the same time. And I worked in the produce department and at the cash register, and we had an old highway marquee sign with the plastic letters, you know, fifteen feet off the ground. And fairly often, it was my job to pull out the ladder and climb up there and change the the lettering on the sign, you know, to, to advertise whatever was on sale. And for some reason or another, when we would put 19 cents a pound bananas up on that sign, the energy of the entire store changed. And I was 16 years old in high school. And I just remember thinking, why is that? And I just, you know, I just, I really thought there was something that I wanted to learn about this intersection of businesses and marketing and strategy and consumers and how they behaved. And so I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. When I started college, I thought, well, that means I want to do advertising. And so I started taking art classes and photography classes. I have an interest in art, but it took me a while. You know, somewhere in that first year, I realized, oh, I'm not really an art person like these other people are an art person. I like cognitively thinking about art and like coming up with the creative idea for something, but executing it artistically was just not where my strengths were. 
And but anyways, being in college gave me time to experiment with well, what what is this? Where are my interests? Maybe it's in psychology. Maybe it's in marketing. So I went up when I went to school in Madison. I started taking classes in both and said, well, I'll make a decision at some point as to whether my interest is psychology or marketing. Turns out Madison both has the A.C. Nielsen Center for Market Research. That's what it was called at the time. It's got a new name now of marketing statistics or something like that. And they've got a really incredible experimental psychology program out of their psych department. And there were some great people, Janet Christopher, Peter Dixon, Johnny Tower, Judith Harakevich, who in the marketing and in the psychology departments both saw some interest that I had and invited me into research programs and things they were doing. And I kind of started realizing pretty early on that there was a real interest I had that lived at the intersection of the study of psychology and marketing with research as the sort of the underpinning. And it was that unique combination that Madison had that made me realize, yeah, you know what? That thing I like about psychology, that thing I like about the intersection of business and consumers is getting behind the why they do this. And so it's very fortunate to stumble into you know, the right school that had these programs, that the right people who cultivated my interests. And, uh, and then with the AC and Nielsen Center for Market Research, I, didn't got, I did not get an MBA from there. But I won a fellowship with the chair of the department and did research with him and it was kind of adopted by that program. Thank you, Janet Christopher. I don't know if you'll ever hear this, but thank you for putting me under your wing and making me a part of the program basically and adopting me. And, and that helped me launch my career into the industry and get noticed in a, in a way where it might have otherwise been hard to find my way to, to the career path that I'm actually on. So great people doing just what academics should do who care about students and foster their growth. It was a uh, Oh, I'm really grateful. That's awesome. It's, uh, I'm especially excited to hear about that because I studied graphic design kind of for some similar reasons. I was like, oh, I didn't know you could use creativity to like influence business. And so I did the same thing. I was like, oh, I guess that means I should go into like graphic design or something like that. So I went through the art department, but I was of the same mindset where I'm like, well, I really need to know about business design and psychology <laughs> to like really unlock the code of how I can help businesses. So I did go try to talk to the business department and see if I could do a double major situation. But unfortunately, they wouldn't let me. So instead, I just took as many psychology classes as I could and said, well, maybe someday I'll just go back for my MBA. <laughs> but but I do feel like, you know, if, if you're trying to end up in the business world, those three things kind of need to be married in some way. And obviously, to different proportions, depending on what you think your role will be in the business world. But you can't really do business without some psychology and you can't really do design without psychology and you can't really help businesses without knowing more about business as a designer. So they're all kind of interconnected. So I'm excited to see that more programs are starting to do those dual degrees of design MBAs or other things like that. Cool. So you ended up, you know, through your career doing various things, but a lot of it is focused around research, kind of insights, analytics, more of that hardcore, like let's gather the data and understand consumers and then make more informed decisions. Was that something that kind of like came out of your education there in Madison? Or is that just kind of the way your career path led and you just built up a lot of expertise and the, the kind of momentum kept going in that direction? Yeah. Yeah. For me, it really was out of, right out of the program. I mean, it, again, I was very curious in that way. Little secret, don't tell anyone. I'm the I'm the dyslexic guy who's bad at math, who's been leading research, you know, functions for for years now. But it was really interesting. I found that there was something about 
math the way they taught it in school that just didn't work for me, right? I am not, my brain does not work with route memorization. Teach me to, you know, force me to learn to memorize spelling or, or even learn grammar rules according to just the strict rules or math. My brain didn't work with any of that style of teaching. But when I found statistics and research methods, that sounds so geeky, it was the philosophy, it's the theory, it's the idea of how you solve problems as opposed to the route learning of here's the formula and he's like, I don't know if that's still how they're teaching these things, but that's how they were teaching it when I was there. And when I got introduced to good teaching about the philosophy of and how you solve problems and how you can really use math as a, as a way of solving puzzles, that clicked in my brain. And, and, and again, it was a research, uh, psychology research methodology class that made me first sort of really connect with that and uh, design your own study, run your own T-STAT tests, and you know, see if there's a difference and write a paper about it. It was that very gritty, hands-on, in-the-data stuff that it, like really got me excited in school. And, and then the AC Nielsen Center really taught the math and the methods behind research as well. And, and I really gobbled that stuff up. And I am still not a person at the same time that learns the method by the route sort of way of doing it. I play very much in the world of concepts and ideas. And that that has also fed my energy. So yeah, I roll up the sleeves and I get you know messy with the data. But I don't actually work with the data super well. I actually think my dyslexia has been my benefit. You know, because it forces me sometimes to say, what am I actually seeing? As opposed to staring at the details or running through the, the most technically perfect way of solving a math problem, I think about it conceptually first. And then I run the numbers and I work on the problem and I you know, think about it conceptually. My strength is in the conceptual thinking. And, and that has really also fed and allowed me to use data to inform business strategy, but also to be one of the people who can see the big picture as opposed to just getting mired in the process or the numbers themselves. So I think that was a really long way to answer your question, but that's that's kind of how I got into that space. And then, you know, careers from there have always, I think, I've been able to to differentiate myself in leveraging that ability to to get out of the details and also the willingness to to get into them at the same time. Nice. That's cool. And I love how so often a weakness can really actually be a strength. It just depends on how you look at it. And sometimes strengths can be weaknesses. Like a relevant example for me is I've found that I can kind of see more options than most people, you know, like a great in a brainstorm, conceptual thinking, whatever I can, where some people might see two paths forward, I might see 20 or 30 or something like that, which is awesome for what I do (laughs) as like a designer, creative director, whatever. But but it's also makes me makes it harder for me to make decisions sometimes because I see all the paths forward and I can see how any path could lead towards success or failure. So, so how do you pick which, which one to go go down? So I do tend to like leaning on data analytics and other things that are, or or processes. <laughs> call, call me, I'll get you yeah, the data. <laughs> processes, frameworks, whatever I can apply just to help me make those decisions because I can just see all the possibilities. So it's both kind of a strength and weakness, weakness, like you were mentioning. So you individually found your way into the natural products industry and, and with New Hope Network. T- talk a little bit about your career journey and how you landed here. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're halfway through my career journey. So the, the big thing was finding my way to to the market research career, that that actually existed as a career. Went to work in Cincinnati, Ohio for a company called Burke Market Research after a couple internships and fellowships within the college and quickly realized that 
Cincinnati was not the big city experience I was looking for. Coming from Madison and Duluth, Minnesota, it felt like it for about a year. And then I was like, no, 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 I need something more. Was really lucky to, to land a job doing market research for American Express in New York City. Had an amazing experience in the city. Learned so much from a really sophisticated research organization. Uh, met my wife, had my first son in New York. Realized, though, I didn't want to sell credit cards my whole life. That was not going to be fulfilling. I loved the career. I loved the people at Amex. And I really wanted to say, hey, if, if my job this gets back to the beginning of our conversation. If my job is to help companies be more successful, if my job is to help increase, drive growth in businesses and help people make decisions more effectively and you know, be one of the tools that helps business grow and, and be more profitable, who do I want to do that for? Do I want to sell more credit to consumers? I'm not saying credit's bad. It's been sold in a bad way often, not necessarily by my former employer, but by a lot. <laughs> and I didn't want to see that as my career options. And so I was, okay, who, who am I going to do this for? Who, where is this skill of mine going to, to do some good in the world? And uh, it didn't take me long to make the connection between personal choices, choices to transition to a, a vegetarian, largely vegan lifestyle, and the realization that that's a community that could really use this help. And so it put me on this path of saying how eventually to the natural products industry, how can I get my, indus- my experiences into that industry? And it took a long time because the industry was much smaller back in 2006, and uh, there weren't a whole lot of jobs for market researchers at the time. But I was patient and made a few career moves and pivots that got me out of financial services and into consulting roles and into the places where I'd have experience. I moved myself to Boulder and my family to Boulder to kind of be in a place where I thought those job opportunities might come up and then networked eventually my way to, to New Hope. And uh, I've been here for seven years and delighted to, as I said at the beginning with our mission, really be using these skills to help grow the industry and um, delighted about that. So so did you move to Boulder because you knew New Hope was there? Like, were you already familiar with the industry and knew like, hey, this is a great spot, not just because there's lots of great natural organic product companies there, but like New Hope's there and maybe that's like a in I didn't even know who New Hope was. So yeah, no, I, I moved uh, because I knew the industry was was prominent there. And because, you know, my wife and I, we sat down, I actually, uh, when I lived in Madison, there were some people who said, oh, if you love Madison, you'd love, you'd love Boulder. It's kind of like a mountain version of Madison. A lot of outdoor experiences, about the same size. It's, you know, a college town where you can be a part of the campus or you can kind of be separate from it and you town is not the college, you know, necessarily. And so Boulder had always been a place of curiosity in my mind. And my wife and I sat down and she's from, I'm from Minnesota, you know, she's from Southern California. When we kind of were thinking we're ready to leave New York, where do we want to live? We actually had picked Boulder as a great mix of a place where I grew up with a lot of outdoor activities and I like the change of seasons and, and the sunshine as well as the snow. And my wife grew up in Southern California and had lived in New York with not quite, but almost seasonal affect sort of issues and just didn't want to be in a place that was cold all year long and gray through the winter. And we picked the, you know, sunny Colorado front range as a, as a great place to be. And it just so happened to have a pretty robust natural products industry, even back in 2006, of course. I didn't know anything about New Hope, but there were a lot of other companies there that I had found. And it wasn't until we could not we couldn't get a job when we were leaving New York. I couldn't figure out how to get a job in the industry in Boulder, and so we went to LA and worked out of. I worked for Lieberman Research Worldwide in LA for 
several years until I felt comfortable sort of asking them to say, can I take this job remote? And we, we took that job remote and moved to Colorado, figuring that it would get me closer to the places where I wanted to be networking and the companies that I thought would eventually hire me. And, you know, we were, we had always kind of wanted to give Boulder a try. So, yeah. Nice. Well, that's cool. Yeah, I know. Now I grew up in the kind of near Boulder in the Colorado area of Ar- Arvada, but, uh, Grew up around that area, so I definitely know of all the benefits and know that like Boulder has a big history in like natural, organic sustainability, etc. <laughs> I went to actually CSU, which is the at least state rival school of CU in Boulder. So there are also you know all the all the reputations that of it being just full of a bunch of hippies, which of course is why there's lots of natural organic stuff there. <laughs> but but I had I didn't know you know growing up there about that much about the industry because obviously I wasn't working in it yet and didn't know about New Hope until I started going to the the big trade shows and, and realized there was this uh, presence there that had been like kind of helped found really or connect the community since the beginning. So I know that they're a great organization doing lots of awesome things and it's maybe a nice coincidence that you ended up there in Boulder then because it seems to be a great place for you to land. Uh, with that said, I know that you've also done consulting or kind of act as an advisor to various other organizations like Findaway Adventures and Kiss the Ground Adventures Academy, Amari Botanicals, etc. A few of them listed, but probably a lot more than that. Can you speak a little bit more about kind of what role or function you've found or you've uh, been serving as an advisor to other companies? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I've uh, I've really enjoyed you know working with with all of those organizations and you know speak very would speak very highly of all of them. Uh, Amari, there is the one that's uh, an actual finished product brand, and uh, if you're in the athletic community or or in the recreational athletics community and you're interested in uh, in a really great botanical product, take take a look at them. Uh, great for recovery, calm, relaxation. I'm not trying to sell anyone anything. I just really like them obviously i started working with them because i like what they were doing and the other three were you know nonprofits or or other types of you know industry organizations findaway adventures is a team that's being run by robert craven and uh you know he after leaving megafood really wanted to uh you know put himself in a position where he could continue to find ways to support mission-led businesses businesses using those using business as a force of good and so findaway ventures has become kind of his passion project and way of of putting capital into the world funding young brands you know who are looking for for early funding and and really looking for a breakthrough opportunity to fuel and and fund their their missions and and to help grow them and he comes on in kind of a ceo advisor capacity to support the companies that, that they invest in uh, Kiss the Ground, my goodness, if you haven't seen the movie, please go watch Kiss the Ground. Get familiar with that organization. The The future of agriculture should be regenerative, and I certainly hope it is, and, and they're an amazing organization that's been advocating for it. I haven't been working as closely with them recently, but for, for a couple of years, I worked really closely with them in helping give them some consulting to help them make the connection. They've, they're a great advocacy group. They're really, really good at communicating the the story to consumers and they were looking to build more business partnerships and uh, and we engaged together as I was kind of consulting them and helping them 
shape and craft and adapt some of their story to, you know, into a language that was going to be relevant to businesses and digestible and help them take what they were doing really amazingly well with with consumers and figure out how to adapt some of that story as well for for a business audience. And Adventures Academy is really focused on building meaningful connections between investors and brands to help ensure that uh, there's a really strong alignment when when companies take on money with those who have similar shared purposes and missions. And so really, really excited about the work that, that they have done over the years. And I have done less consulting with that or advisory work there. I've been more a member of their community. So yeah, often I'll, what my because of my role, because of my unique position in the marketplace, I'll, I'll often join these organizations to be the voice of the market, the voice of the consumer to bring knowledge about trends or, or the marketplace opportunities or to help ensure brands are really seeing and giving the consumer a seat at the table in making decisions about their business. And um, and so that'll be the role that I'll often play as kind of a, a market advisor. I'm not really, I don't step into the world of direct marketing, very tactical decision making, but do they understand how their business strategy is connecting to marketplace opportunities and making sure that there's strong foundations to guide tactical marketing execution, brand strategy, product, uh, et cetera. Nice. That makes sense. Cool. And of course, with your role, of, as you mentioned before, of Business Insights um, VP at New Hope and part of the next platform as well, you obviously help a lot of other brands <laughs> gain insights or see the trends or patterns or other things like that that are going on in the industry. So out of curiosity, like where have you seen brands go wrong with research and how do you think they should be using <laughs> research and insights? I, I think it's interesting. I sometimes am a little self-critical of my my profession. I, I used to joke, I, I feel this, I don't feel this way now about my role at, at New Hope, but when I was at American Express or when I was working on the consulting side of the business doing market research for people, I was kind of like, I'm the guy that people hire when their business gets so big and the people they hire to do their marketing are too afraid or unwilling to talk to their actual customers. So they hire me to talk to their customers for them to bring the voice of the consumer to the market. That shouldn't happen. If that's what you're doing, <laughs> you're doing something wrong. And I don't mean to put myself out of a job, but talk to your customers, right? If people are doing research or insights wrong, it's because they rely on research and insights as their only way of knowing their customer, right? So I think it's just really critical. I think our job is important. I do think that companies get to a place where there is more distance. Entrepreneurs are amazing. So often they know their customers super well. They are their customer. They design the problem based on a really intimate understanding. They designed a solution based on a really intimate understanding of a problem. And they launch their businesses and they out-innovate and very often out-compete other companies because of that intimate connection to the to the customer. But as businesses grow, as people get busy, as they get stressed, you know, they, they stop tabling at the grocery store themselves. They grow distant. They're no longer at the farmer's market or wherever that initial idea came from. Distance tends to find its way between the founder and the customer. And market research is there to help fill that gap. But I would also say that as a business, you should develop a business culture of being customer first, remaining close to your customer. And um, very often, when when we hire marketing agencies to help us think about marketing, I think one of the places that people do go wrong when they're thinking about how do we bring the voice of the consumer. So, okay, bringing the voice of the consumer into our business is important. It should shape our marketing strategy. The thing that I see people do wrong most often, I think, is they 
they pick a ill-defined or broadly defined core target market, right? Oh, we're we're great for all women ages 28 to 44. And it's like, wow, that's amazing. There's a quarter of the population, not quite, you know, there's 15% of the population and you picked demographics to describe who it is you're targeting, right? Better than not having a target market, but really not all that useful, right? And yeah, it's great. It's super easy to buy traditional ad against some demographics, but it really doesn't tell you anything about your consumer, right? And so the mistake, other than not being connected to your consumer that that I think people make most often is they define too broad of a target. They don't think, they don't bring design target thinking into their business. And rather than being too narrow, and had always err on the side of being too narrow in understanding who you're designing for, they err towards broad. And they do that based on the faulty assumption that I need my business to be big. In order to do that, I have to target a lot of people. When the opposite is true, yeah, you need your business to be big, but you're going to do so most effectively by intimately understanding a small, well-defined group of consumers. Listening to a group of consumers who feel the pain most intensely and can describe it most acutely. Those consumers who can articulate their their need most clearly are your design target. That's not the only person you market to, but it is the person you design for. It's the person who you solve problems for. It's the person that you put at the center of all decision-making so that you are designing the most focused, intensely right product to solve a problem. When you start saying, we're for everybody, and you're listening to everybody's articulation of a problem, you're getting a watered-down, muddy, hard-to-hear-the-real-problem sort of thing. And you end up trying to be everything for everybody or some variation of that. Or you've designed a problem based on an average description of the problem. You've designed a solution based on an average description of the problem as opposed to something that is really going to solve somebody's needs. And, and so that I think people get that part wrong. They think, I want to serve a lot of people, so I have to have a broad target, you know, as opposed to saying, I'm going to get to this broad audience of consumers by developing the best product out there, and I need to listen to a really focused group of consumers to do that. Uh, that's a really great way of breaking that down, and you're right. That is a common problem that we come across all the time when we're trying to get brands to focus on their target, and they, they want to be for everybody or as many people as possible, and and it's just it's sometimes a battle to help them understand why they need to pick a very specific focus. But yeah. uh, if you've got a great really product that solves a problem that people are passionate about, even if you designed a, the best vegan product for the 2% of US consumers who are vegan, I mean, look at what's happening with plant-based right now. You've got 33%, some will say, or higher of, of the marketplace engaging with vegan products or plant-based products. Design for the vegan, understand their needs, listen to the problems they solve, and recognize there's a 33% of the population out there who's still going to be attracted to this product. I'm not saying execute everything based on the vegan mindset, but you better empathetically understand that consumer better than anybody else out there because that is the consumer who can tell you most intimately what problems they want solved. And when you understand how to solve that person's problem, you can market much more clearly and effectively to a broader audience. I'm not saying you have to design and then market to the vegan consumer, but you better listen to that person and think about how do I design for that audience. And I'm not saying every flexitarian product needs to do that, but it's just an example. I sometimes, years ago, we did some research and I would give the example of the Freegans. Do you know the Freegans? No. 
These are people who have effectively, this is the dumpster diving. There's been documentaries about dumpster diving and people, literally, if you study the freakins, it is a group of consumers way less than 1% of the US population, right? But not wildly smaller than vegans, you know, on a mathematical level, at least. These are people who feel so strongly that our way of commerce in the world is destructive to the environment to the point where to social structures, the environment, everything else, to the point where they choose to opt out of commerce. They might squat intentionally in in abandoned buildings and eat out of dumpsters because they are so passionate. This is not everybody who's homeless, but there's a group out there who are so passionate about it that they've committed themselves to this lifestyle because they feel they need to opt out of our economy. That is not someone you're ever going to sell a single product to. But if you want to understand the passions behind environmentalism, if you want to understand the passions behind some of the social issues that we're going through, that customer can tell you really clearly. And empathizing with that customer gives you an opportunity to market to a much larger group of consumers without ever being able to sell a single dollar's worth of product to that audience. It's a hyperbolic example, but go to that extreme and understand my job is to empathize and understand and design solutions you know, for a niche group of consumers so that I can market more broadly. And that almost sounds relevant to the, I've, I've heard it called the tech adoption curve and I've heard people call it other things, but it's the idea of, you know, there's the innovators who is kind of like these freegans that you're talking about. And then there are early adopters who might be the people who are just kind of trying to be more conscious consumer and understand where they're putting their money, et cetera. And if you can really understand or figure out the problem with the innovators, but really understand how to tap into the early adopters who can then become your brand advocates and help you leap the chasm, as they call it, over to the early majority, which is probably the market you're aiming for when you say, we want to be for everybody. (laughs) But you can't go straight to the early majority. You really got to solve that problem first to get your brand believers, your brand advocates really fired up around uh, just communicating really directly towards them and the language they want to hear, solving their problems, et cetera. And then they'll carry your torch or or wave your flag for you, which is much more effective than trying to just go straight to convincing the early majority that you've got some squishy solution to some problem they don't really know they have yet. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. 100%. Nice. I love it. So obviously, um, New Hope and Next do a lot of just kind of your own ongoing research on the market, on the consumer, etc. And you generously provide that through webinars and events and other things. But I know that brands can also hire y'all to to help them with a specific challenge they're facing. So can you talk a little bit more about how brands can directly engage with you? Yeah. So New Hope at large, of course, you know, if you're a manufacturer or retailer or if you're just within the, the natural ecosystem, we're a great place to come for, for knowledge, education, networking. Our events, we will be having uh, uh, Expo East in uh, uh, in Philadelphia this year. We're really excited to be, you know, making a, a really passionate move back towards gathering our community. Of course, look to all that, that New Hope can do to, to support this industry, to support your business, to, to help you with discovery, whatever that discovery in the industry might be, education and connections and, and whatnot. The teams that I oversee, there's three of them. So Market Ready Insights, the Nutrition Business Journal, and the Next Data and Insights team. And we offer consulting and data and insight services to support the industry. Market Ready is here to support companies getting ready to be you know accepted broadly into retail, helping ensure that their their product, their packaging, 
their marketing is uh, compliant with U.S. regulation. Often a step that young brands kind of don't fully think about before they go to that first print run of their packaging and they're ready to go to retail and they get to retail and somebody's like, I can't put you on my shelf. Like this is not compliant. I, I don't want to take that risk on. And so that's our business that really helps ensure that companies are not just show compliant, but regulatory compliant and, and to ensure they're really ready to take advantage of, of growth opportunities in the industry. Nutrition Business Journal primarily puts out monthly subscription to you know coverage of, of important topics and forward-looking insights into the dietary supplement industry, but also is regularly putting out quantitative reports on the market size and areas of growth uh, across the industry. And then our next data insights team is kind of, is is the front end of innovation consulting team. We're out there looking at the trends, leveraging the sort of unique opportunity we have as a business to tap into our editorial staff, to you know be a part of our next judging process, to see literally every brand that is going to come to our show in advance of being at the show, and to be able to work with all of this hard and soft data about innovation in the industry to help companies sort of identify opportunity spaces articulate what the trends are, and really take action towards understanding the way in which they can innovate or where the opportunities to innovate might be in the market. And so a lot of that work, some of that work is is syndicated. Next year, we're going to be putting out more syndicated data reports. Really, we're going to start selling the data behind all the presentations that we put out, not necessarily the presentations themselves, but the, where that all is coming from, which we haven't done as much of over the years. But we also work with companies to solve very custom problems. And so if, if somebody wants to test new packaging or explore market opportunities or say, how does this particular trend intersect with my line of business, we'll bring hard and soft research methods to the table to help companies fuel, prioritize, identify where to invest in innovation dollars in, in growing the business responsibly. <laughs> yes, of course. Back to that. That's cool. So for those brands who maybe aren't ready to engage with New Hope or Next or in those kind of ways, but do want to do some of their own research, do you have any tips of what you've seen brands doing to try to dip their toe in the research water and gather some of their own direct data on their consumers or the market in general? Yeah. Yeah. I kind of already mentioned this, but first, first and foremost, build a culture that values your customers right? Your consumers, I'll say in this case, just to separate from your retailers. Of course, value your retail customers as well. But know your consumer, prioritize, you know, spending time with them, whoever it is who's tabling, build mechanisms where the feedback that they're getting is coming back to you, is being built into leadership meetings, is is finding its way back. And it's not just somebody dispassionately sort of handing out samples and not engaging with that customer. Those opportunities to engage with the customers and consumers are are critically important. So build a culture where you're actively listening. You're listening openly from above the line, not from a position of fear or knowing and defensiveness, but from a place of curiosity and from a place of saying, there is somebody within my organization who wants to listen to this. And part of my job is to to bring this voice back to the organization. Then I would say, build your email list. You know, if you're direct to the cons- direct to consumer and you're able to capture emails, do that. If there are marketing techniques or marketing things that you're doing out there where you can be capturing emails, building relationships, connecting directly with consumers, do that. There are so many do-it-yourself research tools available these days that really if if you have time and a little bit of know-how 
and a list of your own customers, you can do quite a bit of market research. You can, of course, hire somebody with skill to do that the best possible way and remove some bias from what you're doing and make sure you're really benefiting from the career set of people like me. But if you don't have the money for that, and so many young companies don't, then just be scrappy. And if you're talking to your customer, you know, email or in the store or whatever it is, like you're, you're winning as far as I'm concerned. And the only thing I'll do is I'll loop back to, yeah, talk to your customer, but talk to people who aren't buying your product as well. And remember this design target philosophy, like really know who your actual design customer is, because one of the pitfalls of listening to your customer is listening to the wrong customer or the customer that isn't really your design target. And that's, it's hard to know that when you're having a conversation with somebody in a grocery store, but always take it into consideration. Like, is this somebody I'm selling to, or is this someone I'm designing for? And have those conversations, be smart about how you're listening to the feedback. Not everything somebody says is absolutely important or of equal weight, but, but still listen, have a channel for sharing it within the organization, digest it, and get good at using data and insights to guide decision-making within your business, whether that's data that's coming from social media campaigns or whether that's you know, data that's coming from direct conversations with customers. Nice. Yeah, those are important or super helpful tips. And I especially like the note about knowing that you're talking to the right person, because I think so often people can get all this great feedback, all this great data, but one negative comment can like ruin it all and it makes them scared and then they panic and like shift, take a few back steps into like a super safe option or whatever, because they're just worried that they'll, somebody out there won't like it, you know, but then by tailoring to that one naysayer, all the people who loved it before, you might be watering it down and now all of a sudden that you're not going to connect with anybody. And you don't even know that naysayer might have been like the exact opposite of the target you're aiming for. So, you know, just be careful about who you're listening to or, or how much that's influencing you. Yeah, or test it. Use it, listen to it, and build a hypothesis. Oh, wow, we were tabling this weekend and we had a lot of people who were questioning our choice of sweetener, by the way. Everyone's going to question your choice of sweetener. Everyone has a preference. Everyone has a belief as to whether there should be any in there, if it's too much. Don't take that one or those 12 comments of like, oh my gosh, we need to reformulate and then just go. Like, wow, there's some observations here. I don't know if those were all my core customers or not, but people are concerned about sweeteners. Let's go to our list. Let's go to our core design target, our design audience and say, what do you guys think about sweeteners? We've got this hypothesis from listening to customers in general that sweeteners are really important. What do you guys think, right? What is it that you really want? And they might tell you, you know what, what's more important to me is X, Y, and Z and sweeteners aren't that important, right? Or you might find out that your audience cares about sweeteners as well. And 12% wants this and 12% want that sweetener and 12% want this sweetener. And you're like, well, heck, I don't know how to use that. I guess maybe we're better off staying with what we've got. We can't we can't appease everybody with a sweetener choice because that's often how that data looks like. Everyone wants something a little bit different. I say build, listen. Remember, listen openly. Don't listen from a place of defensiveness or, or putting that person off, but openly. What does that potentially need for my business? Let's build a hypothesis and then test that as opposed to just being like, oh my gosh, we need to reformulate. We need to repackage. We need to like make this big decision. I'm hearing this in the market. And maybe maybe you do need to, maybe you should, or maybe it's just a hypothesis to test among your audience. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, the do-it-yourself method versus the hiring the experts, so to speak, to help you with that 
research. I think what you just outlined is kind of one of the benefits of going with the experts is that you don't have to figure out how to interpret the data on your own and figure out what it means and how to weight this 12% with that 12% with this other kind of feedback. You have experts who know how to analyze that data and interpret it and give you some kind of advice on how to move forward and actualize. Indeed. Odds are it's not the first time we've seen that problem, right? As as with working with experts like your business, right? Like the reason we do this, the reason why people come to us is we've seen these problems before. We've worked through some of these solutions before. We've given it thought, you know, and yeah, you can do these things on your own and more power too if you can. And if you want the experience of someone who does this for a living and sees it over and over again and has the wisdom of having solved similar problems before, that, you know, fine. Well, when you can, I totally understand. <laughs> Young businesses don't have the luxury of, of big marketing budgets always to do it. Or at least ask for advice, right? Like engage somebody. There's a, you know, there's a lot you can do with just saying, hey, how would you solve this? You know, and I'd love to hire you next time. Or once we get that investment, you know, I'll put market research or I'll put brand building or, or design work into my budget. What do you suggest for me right now? Yeah. Yeah, I always advise clients to just, you know, start where you are, do what you can, work with what you got. And then, you know, you can always continue to grow and evolve from there. So if all you can do is send an email to your email list and get some insights that way, that's better than nothing. <laughs> like start there and then you can buy some industry research from experts and then you can eventually engage experts down the road too. So do whatever you can. That's helpful. So as somebody who obviously has their finger on the pulse of the natural products industry, and as we're kind of coming out of this unprecedented uh, pandemic, what do you see as the future of natural products right now? Oh, man. The future of natural products. You know, I'm not going to answer from a coming out of the pandemic standpoint. I want to think big picture if that's okay. You know, the, the future of natural products, we've been in a really incredibly fortunate place. You know, actually, we've We've been doing this, you know, <laughs> New Hope has been doing this work for over 45 years and the industry has been doing it for, for even longer. But, you know, as an industry, we set out to advocate for organic, healthier food options, giving consumers control of their health, bringing transparency into a pretty opaque system of, of getting food and, and grocery products from, from seed to shelf or farm to table or however you want to talk about it. I think the future of the industry is is really a lot of the same. We've we've benefited from the growth of our industry. We're now a pretty sizable portion of of all food and beverage sales. You know, uh, Nutrition Business Journal. Just a couple of quick numbers from the Nutrition Business Journal, who sizes the market for supplements, but also takes a look at the broad marketplace. You know, collectively as an industry, we represent two hundred and fifty-two billion dollars in retail sales across the entire industry: functional food and beverage, natural living, as well as supplements. Looking just at grocery retail food, that industry is about eight hundred and call it nine hundred billion dollars, and our food and beverage portion is a just shy of two hundred million dollars, one hundred eighty six. Sorry, billion one hundred eighty six billion dollars uh, represented by natural, organic, and functional food and beverage. That's twenty one percent. That's amazing. Forty years ago, it was a dream to be that amount uh, of the market. And yet, we're 21%. And yet, organic is only $62 billion of retail sales. Uh, that's across all of grocery product. And somebody reminded me the other day from your podcast that organic acreage is probably still around 1% of U.S. farmland. Like, 
we have done so much and we have an opportunity where consumer culture is shifting towards our industry and away from conventional food production. And yet we have so much further to go. As an industry, we need to stay focused on healthier options for consumers, on organic, on giving consumers control, on bringing transparency into our supply chains and into our product production. We have not gone as far as we need to go. And so the future of the industry, I hope, is a lot more the same, a lot of focus and a lot of dedication to the core things that started and have driven the growth of this industry and consumer resonance with and engagement in it. And I think we need to be increasingly excited about the new frontier. As our, as our way of doing business begins to mainstream and becomes a bigger and bigger part of the traditional or the, sorry, the normal way of doing business, hopefully I'm being a little optimistic here, but as we continue to grow this more responsible way of bringing products to our grocery stores, we also need to set the next frontier. We need to look to, you know, regenerative agriculture and deeper responsibility, you know, getting the exploitation out of our food system, too many products coming from too many countries without proper treatment of, of workers or the soil or our climate, still, even within our industry, we need to do better. And advancing how we uh, approach justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion as part of our way of doing business. And so we also need to be looking to the frontier. We need to really buckle down and do the bas basics of our industry and deliver on the promise that we've made to consumers and look towards the future and how do we continue to drive towards this pinnacle of better. That, that's the future that I see and hope for, but also I think we need to actively steer towards that, right? The allure of fast growth, you know, could pull us away from that if we don't stay focused on the fundamentals of what has made us successful. And the last thing we want to do is feel like we are not fulfilling the needs of consumers or they can't trust the industry because we pursue growth over principle. That that can't be the way forward. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like that's one of the biggest and most common mistakes that companies make is going too fast, scaling beyond your systems, and therefore opening yourself up to a ton of mistakes that's going to ruin your reputation and it's going to take you a lot longer to rebuild than it would have if you had just taken a long view and grown slowly and responsibly, as you mentioned. So yeah, those are Super great insights, and I love it. Um, kind of more, do continue to do more of the great work, but even better at a bigger scale and with more market savvy. It's kind of a, a nice uh, recap of that. So let's do that together. With that said, that's a great way to wrap up, and I, I appreciate you coming on and sharing some of your wisdom and insights and great advice for brands and you know everything you personally and New Hope does for the industry is great. I know as somebody kind of in the industry, it's always just been the the main hub for me of where I can connect with all my friends and, and clients and everything else. And it's um, I'm excited to get back in the swing of things with East coming up here soon. So I'll see you there. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. And uh, thanks for doing what you do in the world. Thanks. Cheers. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Eric or his company, go to newhope.com. Subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel for more innovator interviews, expert advice, and leadership discussions. If you like this episode, leave a heart, thumbs up, or review, and share it with your colleagues. As an ever-evolving show, we also love feedback, so send us ideas for who we should talk to next 
to evolve at modernspecies.com and learn about our online community and new masterclass on scaling brand impact at evolvecpg.com. See you next week.